0: JBR Capital has sponsored the Intercooler podcast for several months now. You've probably heard me talk about the company before. In that time, I've come to really understand what it is that makes JBR Capital different to other car finance companies. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I'd say it's this. Car finance is all JBR Capital does. Might sound like a minor detail that, but in fact, it's really important. It means JBR Capital has a profound understanding of the car marketplace and of car buyers, an understanding that other finance companies could only hope to have. In fact that very focused approach is exactly why the company was started in the first place. We recently had Darren Seelig, founder of JBR Capital on the podcast episode 106 if you want to go back and listen and he explained that he started the company when he realised that general finance lenders actually didn't understand cars or car buyers particularly well at all. So he spotted that gap in the market and he founded JBR Capital to fill it. So before you buy your next car be it a supercar, sports car, classic car, hypercar, or a luxury car, even if it's a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. And it really helps us if you tell them that the Intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 116 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here. Um, And you join us after we've both spent a weekend at festivals, um, (laughs) although very different different festivals. Andrew was at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. Um, I was at Glastonbury Festival. You don't need to hear about my time at Glastonbury, but we will talk a little bit about the Festival of Speed because I was, even though I was at Glastonbury, I was just on my phone half the time, looking at all the amazing things that were going on at the Festival of Speed. So we, we will talk about some of that stuff, some of Andrew's experiences. Um, <clears throat> actually, it's a busy episode. We've got plenty of other bits and pieces to get through. Um, first of all, though, I just want to tell you all about some news around our website. Um, I think you've probably heard us talking about our website um, before, our shiny new website, which looks really beautiful. And we now have a launch date, Wednesday the 6th of July, next week. Um, so it's really quite soon if you go to the-intercooler.com you'll see a holding page which gives you some idea of what the website might look like Um, you can also sign up for updates about the launch um, and we will tell you much much more about it in next week's episode Um, Andrew just a quick word on the website though because we're we're excited we've been putting an awful lot of work into this we've got
1: you probably know how many hundreds of stories we've already got uploaded to. I know it's over a million words. Yeah. Um, you know, not just from, you know, the likes of you and me, but from, um, you know, some of the greatest writers who've ever written about cars. Um, you know, from people like, I don't know, Mel Nichols and Peter Robinson, who we grew up with, um, you know, to um, guys like Henry Catchpole and Andrew English and Colin Goodwin, um, you know, our Engineers like David Tuig, Joe Fidalgo, our designers, um, Ian Callum, Julian Thompson. I mean, it's just an amazing roll call of the good and the great of the motor industry. And um, you know, if you've subscribed to our app, um, you will be very used to reading um, the words of these people. But with the website, it's just going to be so much more accessible, so much easier to share, so much more beautiful because you'll be able to look at it on you know in big screen glory um and yeah we, we are incredibly excited about it it's you know it, this this has always been in the pipeline um it's taken time because we wanted to get it right um what it's not going to be is one of these websites which is just bombarding you with clickbait and pop-ups and banners and everything else it's going to be very very clean um very simple very beautiful um and yeah we are unbelievably excited about it we've been working on it for i mean goodness knows how long we've been working on it for um you yeah months and months and months um but it's kind of good to go now uh, and we're now just sort of going through the snagging phase where we are we are testing it um to make sure it doesn't sort of fall over um when we launch it and uh yeah that's next wednesday uh, the 6th of july so please do go and have a look the hyphen intercooler.com
0: yeah um that's the holding page for now but you can sign up for email updates um <clears throat> yeah there you go so we'll tell you much more about the website next week um as we prepare to launch the real thing it will be our new home um the app will live on but the website will be our new home um so it's really important to us uh okay more next week but let's talk a little bit now about goodwood festival of speed <clears throat> i don't miss too many festivals of speed um but I, yeah, you... I i was disappointed to miss this one it looked like a good one it was a bad one to miss as
1: um... <laughs> in it was a really good festival I mean, there, there, there was there, there, there was an amazing atmosphere. It was so busy. Um, you know, everybody's walking around. Even on Thursday, people were going, this feels like a sort of a Saturday crowd. And by the time we got to Saturday, I mean, the place was absolutely rammed, uh, which was great, wasn't it? Um, and the stuff going on on the hill. Oh, my God. I, mean, I don't know where you want to stop, but, I mean, the amount of times I just had to stop what I was doing and just gasp at what was going on. Um, and... You know, there are a couple of cars, well, one car, one van, which we need to have a quick chat about. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I think I think the sort of, if there was one takeaway from it, if you want to go really, really, really fast up that hill, and, you know, some people won't like this, but I think you need an EV. And, you know, if you have an EV, its ability to deploy, which is what it's all about, you know, you think that, well, until this weekend, and we'll get on to that in a minute, um, that the, the Hill record was held by an EV, the Volkswagen IDR, um, and that how even that was um, smashed this weekend. Uh, it's, it's what you need. And it was to watch those things go up the Hill was absolutely astonishing.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a good point that ship out EVs. I mean, I suppose they're just well suited to these short burst forms of motorsport, aren't they? Because you get phenomenal power from. If you look at the motors that power these things, if you picked one up, well, the point is you'd probably be able to pick one up because they don't weigh anything like what a, a, a comparatively powerful combustion engine weighs. Also, because they're running over short distances, they don't need enormous battery packs, so they're not hideously heavy. Um, and that's, that's why they're able to go so damn quick.
1: Yeah, and, and you could also configure them because, you know, they lead you know well the mcmurtry which we're going to talk about very shortly you know that needed to have power for 40 seconds so you just so the, you know there's no you know trying to get any range range is an irrelevance. it's 1.1 miles you need 1.2 miles of range that's it um because you can, you can coast back down the hill <laughs> so uh, you you can have, you can just turn everything up to 11 um and let it go
0: and my goodness they did um Okay, let's come back onto the McMurtry in a moment, but you did mention the Ford Supervan. um, Yeah, the was hilarious. I'm sure people are familiar, but can you give us a couple of minutes on the backstory of Supervan and why it's... Yeah, I mean, very
1: quickly, there have been um, three... Well, there have been other Supervans. Um, The XJ220 Mule was a a Ford Transit uh, because they didn't want anyone to know what powertrain was in it, Uh, and Renault did a Renault Espace with Formula One um power but the super you're talking about are official sort of Ford products. The first one was in nineteen seventy one, um uh, which was just an old um sort of you know an old uh original uh would have normally been powered by a V4 engine transit um into which they put a GT forty engine. Um <laughs> it wasn't a GT forty but a transit body people always say that it wasn't but it did have a powertrain of a GT forty. Um and that looked ridiculous. If you go and put SuperVan to YouTube, go go watch that thing being driven around. It, it is utterly absurd. You, most of the time, it spends on three wheels. Sometimes two. It looked like a nightmare to drive. Uh, and then in '84, they did a like a a proper one with you know it didn't actually have a steel transit body. It had a, like a silhouette body, uh, and that ran with a Ford Cosworth DFL engine in it. I think, and that was properly rapid. And that in the early 90s, they actually adapted that car on Supervan 3, which had a Ford HB Formula 1 engine in it. Um, and they were really, really rapid things. I mean, they, they would do, I think one of them did 175 miles an hour into the braking area of Stowe. But all those three Supervans put together don't have the power that this one Supervan that Ford unveiled at Goodwood has. 2,000 horsepower. Uh, and they got Roman Dumas, the well, until this weekend, the previous Hill record holder, the Pikes Peak record holder, you know, Lamore winner, all round hero, to drive this thing. And it just looked absolutely ridiculous. I mean, actually when he was trying to go fast it just looked amazing, but sometimes he wasn't trying to go fast, he was just trying to do a spectacle. And you can do this thing, this line lock thing where you can and actually in the supervan you can lock either axle. So you can lock the front wheels. And let the rear wheels incinerate, rear tyres incinerate themselves, or vice versa. Um, and to see a transit van sitting on the starting line disappear in its own tyre smoke before cannoning up the hill, it was yeah, that was a, that was a proper crowd crowd pleaser. Um, so yeah, I mean, fair play to Ford for doing. It. And also, uh, I was talking to some of the guys from Ford, and they were going, "Oh well, yeah, uh, it's a bit of a pity because it hasn't actually got the full two thousand horsepower this weekend. We couldn't quite get it, so it's probably only running about seventeen hundred. And it hasn't got brake regen on it this weekend because if it had, you know, it'd be able to go even faster. But it was still, it was still something like the fourth or fifth quickest
0: thing up the hill all weekend. It's a two-ton transit van. Um, <laughs> so yeah, loved seeing that. <laughs> Ah, oh, there's a theme here, isn't there, with um, the two cars that we've been talking about. It's, is yeah. this when electric becomes cool with a, the Goodwood Festival of Speed audience? Um, you know, with these two cars sort of demonstrate what can be done. And I, I, There will be people going, I don't care, it's not got a big V8 or a V12 or something. Um, to watch me, it doesn't them. really matter. Yeah.
1: Watch them. Okay, they don't sound great, but watch the visual spectacle. You can't watch... The super van with Dumas driving it go up the hill and go. That's not exciting.
0: Mm. It just is. It's
1: absolute. It's utterly thrilling. Um, and that's before you've mentioned the <laughs> McMurtry.
0: <laughs> okay, so yeah, let's talk about thrilling. A thrilling spectacle. <clears throat> and for me, the biggest news from the weekend was the mcmurtry um, setting a new outright course record. Um, and this is the little electric car that looks. It looks like the Batmobile, doesn't it? The sort of scaled down child's Batmobile, maybe. Um, it's a really curious looking thing, a single seater with a roof. Um, it's a, a rear drive car. It's got about a thousand horsepower and it weighs less than a thousand kilograms. Um, the clever thing about it really is that it's, it's a fan car, so it's, it sucks itself to the ground. Um, and at standstill, it can produce 2,000 kilograms of downforce. It doesn't need the air flowing over any aero devices, the fan just draws it into the ground, which is So, and what is so clever about that is, well, there are two
1: things which are unbelievably clever about that. One is, you know, always with downforce, you get drag. That is the eternal trade-off, isn't it? Not this time. You get no drag. Um, And so it doesn't slow down as the speeds increases. It just goes on, you know, but the acceleration curve apparently is basically a straight line until they cap it at 200 miles an hour. (laughs) Um, And the other thing is, you got it, you got two tons of downforce at rest, which means you don't need four wheel drive. I mean, that thing went off the line like a shell out of an artillery gun mm. with real drive because it was already su- basically clamped to the ground. So it wasn't going anywhere. I mean, I, I think they were saying it did 0 to 60 in 1.2 seconds. My God, was it 1.2? 1.2 or 1.5, but it, it, was, it was a low to mid one, ones. And I haven't done the maths, um, but the G you must have pulled. I mean, it's, it's not far off. Well, it is a bit far off a top foot field dragster, which does naught to one hundred and under a second. But honestly, if you'd seen that thing go off the line, I mean, okay, let's talk briefly about another um, electric car that was going. Up, only because I happened to be sat behind it on the hill, and I had so I witnessed a bit. So this was the uh, Porsche Seven Eighteen Cayman E Performance. Which is a thousand horsepower electric cayman um it's you know if you remember the mission E concept it's basically it's the next development of that now the thousand horsepower I happened to be sitting behind uh, Richard Leitz when he went off the line and I remember looking at it and I remember saw the I, I saw the sort of lights go green, and the next time my brain registered anything, he was turning in for, for the first corner he'd just gone. it had just disappeared, and that is nothing like as fast as the McMurtry so
0: yeah i I would i would love to have seen it in person um but the footage of that the record breaking run it's on youtube it's it's bizarre it looks like the footage has been sped up the way it it does carries speed through corners and accelerates it's phenomenal that's what that's what your eyes sorry that's what your eyes tell you you honestly you you believe you think your eyes
1: deceive you i mean i was standing um just on the main straight past the house when it came past and as it came past you know something just didn't compute it just didn't seem it didn't seem possible Mm. that something okay i mean yeah if this had been a supersonic aircraft coming past at 500 feet then you know fair enough but (laughs) something that's actually attached to the planet coming past you like that so close was i've never seen anything like it i mean the closest i've ever seen to that level of visual drama and okay it's a very very different thing uh are because you can get so close to bikes on the isle of man yeah um, yeah yeah it, it's that level of i can't
0: believe it insanity god yeah i've seen the bikes at the isle of man coming through bray hill it's for spectacle there's nothing quite like it um no, so no. yeah that you compare the mcmurtry to that speaks a lot so max Chilton driving wow huge credit to max he set a new outright record 39.08 seconds so Several tenths quicker than the VW IDR. and do you remember? For a long time, the Goodwood record was held by Nick Heidfeld in a Formula One car. Was it a McLaren? Forty-one point six. One it, it was not yeah.
1: McLaren. Um, it were, yes, it was. And he said it in nineteen ninety nine. Okay, so I think he held it for like twenty years. Yeah, and and I think there was a certain there was a certain thing he was thinking. Well, you know, it may never it may never fall because <laughs> I know at the time it was so much faster than. But what I find so amazing about the McMurtry, you know, Volkswagen, you know, the largest car company in the world, goes and builds an electric hill climb car. And the very next year, this tiny little startup from absolutely nowhere, which no one's heard of, goes and beats it. Um, Mm. Now, there are reasons for that. You know, I think one of the really smart things about the McMurtry is that it's so small, so narrow as the IDR is a big old thing, isn't it? Um, And... So you just don't take up so much space, which means you can take mm. much um, better lines through corners. Um, but even so, even
0: so, it was astonishing. To so see. it went. Uh, it went two and a half seconds quicker than Heidfeld in that F1 car. Yes, <laughs> which is a huge gap. But as a proportion of the elapsed time, forty seconds or so, two and a half seconds in forty seconds or so is a phenomenal amount. If you extrapolate that over a grand prix distance you know you uh, a qualifying or, lap or in a nurberg Nürbur- ring lap yeah yeah it's, it's talking if we're talking f1 you know what double that double 40 seconds yeah a minute and 20 seconds that's about a qualifying lap isn't it the mcmurtry would be five seconds i'm not saying it would be five seconds quicker over a formula one circuit but to give you an idea it's an that's, enormous margin that's the margin of superiority phenomenal um it's special to me this the McMurtry because it comes from one town across from where I went to school I went to school in Thornbury in South Gloucestershire this is from just outside Charfield um, and it's it, it just seems that bit more special to me because that's where I grew up you know that was that was home yeah. for me as a kid where I went to school yeah um, so it, it's it yeah I, I really like it because of that and we will be doing more with McMurtry, I think we're going to do a lot on
1: it because I, I just think there. I mean, there will be people, and I, and I completely understand this. Who, you know, who say, well, hang on, you know, they haven't said what it's going to cost, but we know it's going to be a seven-figure car, so it's going to be a million pounds minimum. Um, they'll make hardly any. Um, they wouldn't tell me what their intended production was, but they said, you know, I said to them, you know, double digits, and they sort of looked at me which to, as if to suggest, well, yes, but probably quite low double digits, um, but. I don't know I you know, these are people who strike me as uh people with plans um who have places to go and I I just think it's a really really interesting project and the very fact that they have you know we have spent this long on this podcast raving about an electric car
0: hmm.
1: you know is not something I thought I'd be doing anytime
0: soon so it yes, volumes, isn't it? good on them, yeah um anything else from Glast- from goodwood it's to Glast- be on the brain here anything else from goodwood um, well, I'm just,
1: I'm, I'm, just going to, uh, do a minute on the stuff that I drove because, um, well, I can, and I just want to, so I drove, um, uh, only because I, I just feel so ridiculously lucky and I kind of think if I put it on the record, then it somehow feels a bit more real to me. So I drove the, at the members meeting, I was lucky enough to drive the 1987, Uh, Porsche 962 in the parade there Um, but they had the 1982 winner there the 956 and being unable to drive two cars at once Um, I didn't drive that in the parade but I did up the hill on Friday the car that won Le Mans in 1982 the only race it ever did which then got parked for the next 40 years Um, and there I was flinging it up the hill uh, which was lovely it was such a a friendly, nice, I mean, even easy car to drive. Uh, I then got out of that into a thing called the 961. Now, you've driven a 959. um, And the 961 is the one and only racing version of the 959 that ever got made. So imagine a 959 with half a tonne less weight, and instead of 450 horsepower, 650 horsepower. Yeah. Um, Yeah. it It was ridiculous, actually. And it was actually really quite a hard car to drive. It didn't feel uh whereas you know something like a 962 feels so developed and so together this just felt like you know uh a wrestling match from start to finish enormous amounts of turbo lag very difficult even just to get it off the line and then once it finally
0: lit up um yeah oh my goodness watch out um so i I think um, you've you've driven the 961 before haven't you and i think yeah a long time ago that you wouldn't be in a hurry to drive it again (laughs) Yeah, well, you say that. There's somebody obviously did. Of course you do. <laughs> I mean,
1: it was it was hard. It was you know it was it was it was it was challenging. It was you know literally just to get it to the top of the hill uh, because of all the lag and the banging about. And you know, this is a car with no downforce. It's engine to completely the wrong base. A ridiculously short wheelbase. You could so easily bin it. Um, so I drove that, and then I drove um, the. GT remember the GT3R, the nine nine seven GT3R hybrid? Um, the only you know hybrid nine eleven um that there 's been uh, I drove that again. Um, the hybrid was had been taken out, so it was rear wheel drive rather than four wheel drive and that was just beautiful that was just that 's the sort of car you get in and you and, and you actually feel you can have a bit of a go because it 's quite compact it 's normally as, r- aspirated so you know no lag to worry about it 's got paddles it just makes your life easy um, and i and actually of the three that 's the one I enjoy driving most because um the other two even the 956 which was lovely to drive you just think of the history and the value and the everything as it is intimidating um whereas in the 997 i just felt completely at home um and you sort of start thinking oh well i wonder where i could go faster if i were going to drive it again yeah, and you can't think like that you just got to get it to the top in one piece which i did but that was um that was mega so yeah lucky boy
0: a good festival of speed <clears throat> okay yeah. well i'll be there next year um good Let's leave that there for now, then, because I've been driving some new old Jaguars. Um, And I'm not going to spill all the beans here because I'm going to be writing a couple of pieces um, for the Intercooler app and website, actually. Um, But I just want to discuss a couple of bits and pieces here. So um, Jaguar invited me to Jaguar Land Rover Classic, um, which is where it's actually a separate business um, to JLR. And it's where they restore um, older Jaguars and Land Rovers and where they build uh, continuation models. Um, It's also where they store this incredible collection of heritage vehicles, just cars from the Jaguar and Land Rover back catalogues that are somehow significant. Um, I'll come to that in a moment. But the moment, the instant you walk into the reception area, at jaguar land rover classic you realize that it's a special place just littered with to the right loads of really special um jaguars xj two xj 220s there um mark twos all sorts of special bits and pieces e-types and then to the left you've got a whole load of land rovers you've got early land rovers you've got um early range rovers there just really special significant stuff and that's the reception area um but it's not it's not open to the public is it it's not like a museum I, th- <clears throat> I think probably I don't know. I don't, I don't want to send a flood of people there just turning up, but it, <laughs> it looks as though that reception area is geared up for guests. You know, there's so you could so you could probably go on, a, on an official tour or something. I would have thought so. It's worth looking into. Even if yeah. you just stuck your nose into that place, you'd be impressed by what you saw. Um, but we then went into the the sort of production facility or the workshop, which is enormous and immaculate. Um, and the capability that they have there is really significant you know they they have xj220s shipped from all over the world to that place to be serviced in some instances by people who built the things originally um and you know there's just all sorts of wonderful cars being serviced or built uh, or restored or built from scratch as these continuation cars are um we then went into the, <clears throat> the storage facility where these 400 um, heritage cars live and they're stacked um, on, on two levels on these ramps, you know, one, one ramp above the other. And you're just walking through this, these hall, this enormous hall spotting these incredibly significant cars. They recently found what is actually known to be the earliest surviving Land Rover Okay, it's thought to be the earliest surviving Land Rover. Um, It was found in a garden in Birmingham, buried in mud up to its axles, and it's now in this collection. Um, They've got the Queen's L322 Range Rover, dark green Range Rover, um, which is one that she drove, and it's just sat there with the window down, and you can stick your head into it and go, Queen sat there, Queen drove this. (laughs) It's bizarre. (laughs) It's in pristine condition. Um, and what else have they got they've got cars from Bond films Um, so I think in No Time To Die um, uh, an original shape Range Rover comes in and hits Bond Um, I can't remember what he's driving Um, but that Range Rover is in that collection and it's destroyed at the front Um, they've got just all sorts of significant things there, the one that caught my eye um, was a yellow F-Type four seater which I had no idea existed. Blimey. Um, yeah. I'll tell them about that. Good point. Good point indeed. Yeah, we will. Um, it's actually a 2 plus 2. And apparently a couple of these these things were built. And this one is a runner. It's a V8 rear drive. Um, and you peer in through the window and you see these two actually tiny seats in the back. And you know why they did it, because the 911, um, so many people are able to have a 911 because it's because they have those little little rear seats which are tiny but if you've got kids um they're actually handy and without them you know a a 911 wouldn't be um practical for so many 911 owners Um, and so that's why jaguar clearly experimented and and yeah and
1: and also even people who don't have kids um yeah even if you don't even if you never use them it's not the same because you might, you think that well one day I might have to maybe there'll be some yeah. set of circumstances maybe it'll be somebody else's kid or I'll find myself in some situation and people like it's like people I don't know who buy Range Rovers and never go off road with them or you know, people mm. buy Ferraris and never do two hundred miles it's not what they will what, what you're going to use them for it's the knowledge that should you do that that yeah. they could um, and you know I think that's a point that you know that, 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 that often gets missed so. Mm. Um, so was it on a longer wheelbase, or did it just not have a boot? Or
0: <clears throat> this is the thing—it's buried away um, towards the back of all these stacks of cars. Um, yeah. I had to sort of squeeze my way past the Queen's Range Rover to try and get to it, um, and then it's packed in, cheap by jowl with a load of other cars. So, and it's dark—a little dark corner—and um, so I was walk- walking around this thing, you know, folding my way between all these other cars, just trying to figure out what they'd done. Um, and it's very difficult to tell Um, but apparently it is a bit longer in the wheelbase so there is more length in there Um, but when you look at the seats they are tiny and I think that's probably why um, the 2 plus 2 +2 F type didn't go any further because actually (laughs) it probably wouldn't have made much of a difference to how practical the car was Um, sure and I I would love to drag it out of that collection and put it in open space because I, I suspect they've done something with the glass house with the rear of the cabin just to draw it out a little bit I guess to make a little bit more headroom in those rear seats because it there's something about it that doesn't look quite right and I could not put my finger on it I was staring at it right up until the moment where I got dragged away um, just trying to figure out what they'd done do you, do you know the the four seat E-type with the much higher roof at the yeah, rear I mean, of the that cabin was, that
1: was an official production model the yeah, two, yeah. two plus two e-type yeah
0: and it looks much less un, m- much more ungainly than yeah, a normal e-type coupe yeah. this had a hint of that about it i might be wrong but i was staring at it thinking that's something there towards the back of the cabin is not quite right it might have just been me um but it was really intriguing to see this thing um that i had no idea existed and it's a runner you know the the chap who runs the uh, the collection took it home one day. Um, apparently, the fuel gauge works backwards, um, but it's a proper runner. Um, so it's really a really intriguing car. Just to, to to spy for a few minutes and try and figure out a little bit more about okay. it. Shall we?
1: Shall, shall we make it our, our our mission over the next week to have a word with Ian about it and then um, report back on it uh, next week?
0: Good idea. Good idea. We'll do okay. that. Um, I'm also I've asked them to take some photos of it for us um they were a little jaguar the jaguar guys were a little bit coy about it uh so it might be that they actually didn't want us to to see it and reveal all about it but we'll try we'll ask the questions um Good. because it's an intriguing thing um so that was the and morning you some after, stuff after that we went to jlr's fen end um it's sort of a proving ground um which used to be pro drives proving ground it was just Kenilworth Airfield back then I remember going there years ago to drive a couple of bits and pieces um, it's now they've spent so much money on this facility because it looks pristine um, and it's basically a perimeter circuit around an odd airfield um, it's like a motorway that folds itself around an airfield it's wide it's three lanes wide like a motorway um, with a banked corner around a hairpin at the far end um, so it's not a racetrack uh, and there's no runoff whatsoever, you know, apart from the fact that it's wide. Um, so it's a slightly odd place to drive a car. But, yeah, we were there to drive <clears throat> a the C-Type continuation, which is Jaguar Classic's most recent continuation. Um, we were also there to drive a, the D-Type continuation that came before it. Sadly, though, that car had a, a mechanical fault. I think it was a, a brake fluid leak that they couldn't trace on the day so that car was parked up um they tell us we'll be invited back to drive it at some point which i hope to do um in its place then we had a, an xk120 um, and then we had a uh, lightweight e-type which is a again um, a recent continuation type thing but also uh, the e-type reborn which is a fully restored e-type um so we had these four cars to drive um i'm not going to spill everything here because I want to write a couple of stories about this occasion, but I do just want to talk about the C-Type um, <clears throat> which is they, it's, they cost between 1 and 2 million, it's not entirely clear at the moment no more than 16 to be built um, based on the 1953 um, model, the, the C-Type at Le Mans, so yeah. disc brakes um, and that extra <clears throat> air scoop in the bonnet honestly it's okay, so it's a new car, but it's probably based on the oldest car I've ever come across. I don't think I've ever driven anything from earlier than 1953. Um, yeah. It's, it was so far outside of my wheelhouse, I can't even begin to express how alien this thing was to me. Um, <laughs> just to- a totally bizarre experience. And I, I don't really... I haven't driven many cars on cross ply tyres either, or anything from this era, um, okay bits and pieces but not much um and just from the instant i got into it i thought this is unfamiliar territory this is not what i'm used to at all um so my legs bunched up knees bent on pedals that did not fall quite where i wanted them to um steering wheel a bit of a stretch away and a big wheel with a tiny thin little rim and so i just sit in it immediately feeling uncomfortable um, yes and then you've got this super sharp clutch um you've got um a non-synchro gearbox so you have to be careful with your upshifts you have to double declutch on the way down again alien territory for me um shouldn't be I fi-
1: well shouldn't. i just haven't done well, it's it. Sh- it, it, well it's interesting you say that because it should okay from second to first the first gear should be the only gear without a Without a synchro mesh on it. So you should have been able to... It would be quite a slow change, but you should have been able to just change normally on the others unless they've put a race box or or something else in it.
0: Yeah, well, it's a non-synchro box, I did ask. And they <clears throat> they specifically say, please double declutch clutch on the way down. Okay, I'll do a little bit of digging on that. Um, yeah. But that's certainly I mean, it what it they said. That,
1: ultimately, it's, it's, the, it's what, what they call the moss box, which is the same box that they put in, uh, you know, the X120 and... Um, I think it even went into early E-types. Um, but anyway, So I, mm. I, we, 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 we digress. Uh, Maybe you, they just wanted us to be careful with it. Did you enjoy it?
0: Um, uh, no. <laughs> Do you know, one of the issues with these, these events is that it, it's literally f- three laps of a... How long's the course? It might be a mile and a half. So yeah. it's just enough to get a taste. So you get um, five minutes in the car. Yeah, if you're lucky. And what you what I found is that I start off horribly uncomfortable just sort of wanting this experience to be over because this thing's worth some seven figure sum I don't want to break it Um, and so I'm always just relieved when these experiences are over Um, however after two laps onto your third lap you start getting comfortable you realize that actually you can do this double D clutch thing Um, you realize the brakes are pretty reliable and strong you can lean on yeah. them, you realise these cross-ply tyres somehow do produce a whole load of grip. You realise that it's not going to try and spit you off this car and so you start leaning into it a little bit more and then you get pulled in. Um, so that's the frustration. You just want to spend a morning howling around in of it course. to try and get your, your head around it. Um, but the the bit that, that really stood out was not when I was driving at all but when I was in the other seat with Um, The chap's name I think is Stephen Hollis and he's he's a racing driver but also Jaguar Land Rover's lead development driver so he's the bloke who sets these things up. Um, He's probably about as familiar with them as anybody. My God, that was an experience. Honestly, to to, to witness firsthand how these things can be driven. The first time he came honking into a corner a quick left-hander and he just kept on the power and didn't break into the last instant. I, I thought, oh, there we go. We're into that barrier then, aren't we? And of course, he stands on the brakes. The thing goes on its nose, sheds a load of speed, and then it just turns in. And I could not believe how quickly it would turn into a corner. Um, he also sat super low in this thing. So you're barely looking over the bonnet. And as it, as he's accelerating, the prow rises like a boat. So you really can't see a thing, which just makes you feel all the more discombobulated. But when he chucks it into a corner, it just immediately starts drifting in that 50s racing car cross ply tyre way. Um, And he's just just got it balanced like that, just with the steering, constant inputs and corrections, and the thing's just gliding through a corner. Um, And that is perhaps the most balletic thing you can see, you, you will ever witness in motorsport, particularly at places like Goodwood, when you've got a whole load of them, drifting four-wheel drifting through corners um and i realized that is the type of driving i want to be capable of um but well
1: i mean obviously i mean when
0: i heard you were going to go
1: and do this job i was really excited because you know, you know as people will know i'm, I'm reasonably familiar with cars yeah. um from that era and i know how they drive and i know how to drive them um and it frustrates me to hear you speak like this because you know you can't, you, you know, particularly if you've never been exposed to that kind of car before. You cannot expect to have anything other than, frankly, a negative experience of it if they only let you have five minutes at it. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and I think, frankly, it's 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 a, it's a compliment to you that even in that time you started to feel that you were starting to get into it. But I, I just hope they when they invite you back, they just I mean, even if you'd had twenty minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you would have seen, and I'm sure this boat who drove you was absolutely superb. And you know that there, there, there are many people who drive those cars incredibly well. But what what, what you can't divine from the passenger seat is how much of that is the skill of the driver, and how much is the simple fact that that's the car, the way the car is designed to be driven. That's mm. what it wants to do. Um, and you know, it's like it's like a modern racing car, which if you drive it slowly and it, it, the tires are cold and the brakes are cold and everything, and it's just horrible. And then suddenly. And you would have done this, you, it, it warms up a bit, you get some tie, and then suddenly it just becomes easier and that 's the thing that you would have found is actually they are in many ways easier to drive when they 're sliding than when they 're not because that 's mm. what they 're designed to do and that 's when you get that 's when you get into that sort of bit which you experience from the passenger' seat where they 're drifting, which makes me all go sort of you know gooey at the knees because that 's what I love i mean to me mm. that is a state of grace which you can get into in a car which you just don't get in modern cars uh, and that's why i love them so much and i just it just frustrates me that you didn't get to experience that and you yeah. know we need to you know you need to because i you would absolutely i know you would i know you know I, I know you well enough and you know, for long enough i know how good a driver are. I, I know that once you realize just how easy and wonderful and controllable and adjustable these cars are on the limit um when they are have got a slip angle i think you, you you'd find a you know a kind of he- automotive heaven that you know you haven't found yet so mm. yeah we'll find a way yeah. of doing
0: it I, well I, I came away just thinking i have to spend more time in these cars and what the um steven said to me is that because they're cross plies they, they're so progressive so progressive and so once you've got the confidence to carry in enough speed and get it to that point it's super yes. controllable and i know super i know i could I know I could control it in that moment because yeah. I've driven plenty of cars, uh, you know, drifting sideways, whatever. I, I, yeah. I just have to, I just need the time to build up my confidence and get to that point. And I couldn't... But also,
1: you know, the other thing is you don't need a two million quid C-type to do it. You know, yeah. any, you know... Well, I mean, I've talked about it before in this podcast. You know, 1960s Alphas, you know, a Julia, a Julia Ti saloon. You know, an Italian police car, sit up and bake three box saloon, um, is absolutely as good, possibly better, at drifting yeah. than a C-type. Yeah, yeah. And well, there you go. W- Without the consequences and without yeah. the risk and the
0: jeopardy. So, yeah. I mean, well, we'll we'll find a way. It's just it, it's massively unfamiliar to me, and that's what really stood out. So, so, a the the ergonomics of the thing, I found immediately off-putting, but I think with more time, I'd get used to that. Um, and B, you know, I've driven plenty of racing cars and I'm used to grip, I'm used to precision, yeah. I'm used to yeah. um, that feeling of slick tyres biting into the ground and leaning on that grip as hard as you can. That, that, I can do that, you know, um, but I'm just so unfamiliar with this feeling of a car constantly sliding beneath you and having the confidence to get to a point where it starts doing that. But I'm determined to get that because I think it looks. So graceful and so enjoyable, and it's absolutely what I want to be able to do in a car. Yeah, um, and it's easy, honestly. Yeah. Well, well, I, I can do it, so it must be. <laughs> no, not at all. But I, I, just need, I just need more wheel time. Um, the last thing I'll say is that. Um, so the other cars we drove, the the two E types, particularly the lightweight, um, so it's based on a design that's only ten years or so younger, but the leap that jaguar made in that time yeah excuse the pun i j- i could not get my head around that um particularly from an ergonomics point of view you know i sat in the e-type legs outstretched the small um steering wheel what is it, is it a motor steering wheel
1: yeah motor It
0: um, will be yeah uh... yeah and leather trimmed one that i could actually grip um yeah and with a gear shift that was right where I wanted it, and this certainly had synchro, so I could just use it like a normal box. Yeah,
1: because that'd be a Jaguar, that'd be a Jaguar box, which they replaced yeah. the Moss box with. Yeah. Okay. So I could. But you, if you think, if you think about what happened in those ten years, you compare us. So C-type. They've actually still got essentially variants of the same engine in them, but yeah. So, C-type space frame, E-type monocoque, mm. C-type live rear axle, E-type independent rear axle. Um mm. C type, iron block, carburetors, E type, alloy block, fuel injection. I mean the I mean it was just totally different. Mm. Um you know, and Jaguar learned so much um and you know they say that racing improves the breed i mean I, th- I don't think you'll ever get a better example of it than that than the progression from you know, and they were both deriv- road car derivatives i mean the c-type was derived from the, the xk120 and the you know the racing e-type you drove was obviously an e-type mm. um but the progress as you say that was made it doesn't feel like it was exactly Bob. Well, but almost maybe maybe even a bit less than 10 years um mm.
0: yeah night and day i'm sure. I, honestly, it it really blew my mind, and it meant that I could drive the lightweight E Type the way I drive. You know, it had yeah. more grip. I just felt comfortable in it. Ergonomically, it was a world apart, um, and so I just felt much more confident in this thing howling around, and it was it was brilliant. Um, so I'll say much much more about these cars in. Um, one or two articles to come on uh, the intercooler soon um, also the the tour of that classic their heritage collection at jlr classic we'll have some good photos from that as well um, i'll write that as a separate piece because it was such a privilege to to get to see it but you know I, the main thing for me is that i'm so unfamiliar with older racing cars and i just one way or another, I have to find a way to become more familiar with them because it, that is the type of driving that I'd like to do. Do you know what? The, the the frustration was that the D-Type wasn't available that day, and I hope I get to go and drive it because I suspect even from C-Type to D-Type, I would be aware of a huge amount of progress um, and you would. just feel more comfortable. Yeah,
1: you would. I mean, a D-Type is probably not as easy as a C-Type to hoon yeah. around, but actually I think you'd feel more familiar with it Um, Mm. just because it's a bit stiffer, um, and it's a dedicated, it's a purpose-built race car, whereas the C-Type was an adapted road car, and uh, yeah, it would be interesting. Well, you know, so they need to get you back, and they need to give you some proper amount of wheel time. Five minutes is
0: ridiculous. Yes, please, Jaguar. Thank you. Um, Okay. All right, well, we're recording this at the start of British Grand Prix week. Um, We're not going to do loads, but, I mean, it's always a highlight of the year, isn't it? Um, I, I love watching F1 cars race at Silverstone. Um, sadly, I couldn't be there. I, I I did get invited at least to uh, the Saturday for qualifying. Um, I couldn't go. But um, looking forward to the weekend nonetheless. Um, hopefully, we're going to see a bit more competition at the front end. It seems as though, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, that the Mercedes is going to be better suited to Silverstone than it has been the, the last few tracks we've been at. Um, yeah. It's funny, you know, here, here I am hoping that may, maybe the Mercedes is going to be competitive. And yet, we know, don't we, that Leclerc in that Ferrari is probably the quickest over a single lap. We know that Max in that Red Bull is the quickest over a race distance. That's probably going to be borne out. And yet, here I am excited for the weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean, it still wasn't, it's, it's a curious place. I mean, I'm afraid it, it, it's, you know, it's, I mean, they, they sell it out every year, uh, which is fantastic. But it's not actually um the greatest spectator circuit out there there are other places you know in the uk you can go and watch motor racing which from a spectator's point of view will give you you know a, a, a bigger greater better view of what's going on on the telly it's it's amazing um but what i love i mean i think that silverstone is it's an amazing circuit um for something that's developed from you know an airfield and it's got all the history and everything else but if you think about what a car needs you know it's not like you can just say well it's a pure aero circuit or it's a pure power circuit or it's a you know it's a type it really does have everything because we think of it don't we as a sort of you know a fast circuit with high speed corners and it's got plenty of those but actually if you think about um the naggy little bits they've built onto the new circuits or turn whatever it is um turns three and four uh you think about luffield you think about that very sharp left into what is now club corner um you know you need your car needs to be you know a consummate all-rounder to do well there um and i think yeah i mean i I would you know what i'd love i'd love it to be george's race that would make me so happy for george russell to you Know, come from nowhere and blitz the British Grand Prix, um, you know, like Lewis did in 2008. Um, that would be that, would, I, but I don't see it happening, I'm afraid. I see it as a straight fight between Max and Charles. I mean, i I'm the Mercedes is, I mean, the thing about Mercedes is, you know, they are getting better, but they're still the third best team. And I don't think you know, I, and if, if you're the third best team, what we're saying is that the best you can do on your own merit, rather than relying on bad stuff to happen to cars in front of you, has come fifth. Yeah? So, you know, they can make a huge improvement, but, you know, unless one of the Ferrari Red Bull drivers, you know, breaks down or trips over themselves or whatever, you're still coming fifth which, you know, isn't going to keep you anywhere near the title hunt. I mean, I think that's probably already gone anyway. Um, so, you know, what I'm really, really hoping that because it's smoother, they say they've s- sorted out the porpoising issue. They say that's in the past. Um, but the bouncing, um, because the car is incredibly stiff um, over bumps and kerbs, is still a proper, proper problem for them. Um, but Silverstone, as we know, is wide and open and smooth and flattened. let's put it this way if it can't go quick there you do wonder where it is going to go quick so i've got i've got everything i mean you know for me lewis has i don't know i can't remember how many british grand prix lewis has won five six seven something like that um i I just love george to do really really well there um but i think ultimately
0: it'll be a red bull ferrari fight i suspect so bring it on though um looking forward to it um we'll leave it there we've got a really good listener question coming up um oh good but before yeah i've not told you what it is but you'll have a good answer um before we do that jbr capital thank you for coming on board as sponsor um if you're looking to buy a new car or a used car go and see what jbr capital can do for you on the finance side contact details in the description of this podcast um please also rate and review the podcast and wherever you listen to to us or watch us follow or subscribe um, that's how we find a bigger audience. So please do do that. Um, so the listener question, I've got it on my phone here. And it Why comes do these from, things
1: always get make me nervous?
0: But it shouldn't. I'm not, I'm shouldn't. not sure I like things having been bounced <laughs> on me. <laughs> so this comes from Dan Rickard. Thank you, Dan. Um, and this is in response to last week's episode where we talk about the McLaren Artura. Um, yeah. And we, we spent a couple of minutes talking about the new powertrain and how wonderful it is that you get full torque from... Two and a bit thousand rpm, um, 2250. Yeah, which is um, half what you the uh, less the than half, peak yeah. from pre uh, for the V8 McLarens. Yeah, that's 5,000. Um, yeah, so it's night and day. And he says, um, the hybrid system and the and the new turbos give gives the McLaren more low down torque, so it's not as peaky as the 5,000 RPM um, peak torque on the old V8. Is this what we really want in our sports cars? Um, He's suggesting that in something like a a mid-engine supercar, he doesn't mind a higher torque peak. Um, Mm. He says he's quite happy um, holding an engine up in the upper reaches, getting down the gears when necessary, keeping an engine on the boil, Why is it a good thing that you've got all this torque from so low down in the rev range? Is that actually what you want in this sort of car? Wow,
1: I could do an entire podcast on this. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, I mean, in many ways, he's got a point. He absolutely has a point. Um, If you're ringing it it out um, and you're really driving these things, um, it doesn't matter if it's all up the top because that's where you're going to be anyway. Um, so that's fine. The other thing is that torque peaks are so misleading um, because what they don't describe at all is the shape of the torque curve. So you could have, I'm going to be ridiculous here, but you could have 99% of your torque at 1,000 revs rising to 100% at 5,000 revs, and somebody will say it was a really peaky engine because it doesn't develop maximum torque until 5,000 revs it's insane it's ridiculous so you've got to have a look at the torque curve um, but these are things which manufacturers very rarely supply um, so that's two things. Um, the thing that I would say is that in more normal driving, when you're not, particularly with things like, you know, McLaren's and enormous performance potential, you're not actually, because you're never on the right roads um, and there's always too much traffic about you, you're actually very rarely really ringing them out. You're probably going to do it most often on a track. But quite often, what you do need is just instant response to squirt past the line of traffic. Um, or you're driving the car in a sort of fast road condition where you're not using all the revs but you want to be getting on with it and at times like that um maybe you don't want to be going hunting around for talk and maybe if an opportunity presents itself to get past something you do just want an instant squirt of power and that is when having a good chunk of low down talk is is really helpful i think however i think where he absolutely has a point is that i think it's less characterful um you know we think of the sort of you know small capacity, how high, high up but naturally aspirated engines and the way they build that sort of sense of coming onto the cam and I mean and we lo- and we love all that and one of the things that and I actually met I, I, I spoke to McLaren about this um, and they sort of nodded sagely um is that one of the things that ferrari does very well with its turbo engines is that they artificially manage torque curves to make those engines respond more like naturally aspirated engines and and, and they do it according you know not just to the drive mode that you're in or the res that you're pulling but even to the gear that you're in you'll get different maps per gear um, and they will artificially restrict torque at lower revs so that you do get this crescendo you do get this increasing sense of urgency building and building and building um, And, you know, so I think, frankly, there's a middle ground between something where you get, you know, a wall of torque and a completely horizontal torque curve from whatever it is, 2,000 to 5,000 revs, um, on the one hand, on the other hand, having a sort of properly peaky engine, which doesn't actually allow you to do, to access the performance of the car very easily. And I think that the Artura, um, you know, does that well. I'd certainly prefer that to... Because it's just more usable than a really peaky engine, but I think that there is a middle ground, and I think that McLaren will probably be well served by having a look, a, 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 you know, a bit of a fiddle with its torque curves and coming up with something which is, you know, a bit more top endy, but not quite yeah. as far as they were with the LV8. Sorry, short question,
0: the, long answer. <laughs> and I guess the real benefit of the hybrid system and the torque fill is that transient throttle response. So um, those old peakier McLaren engines didn't have the sharpest throttle response. And I, I haven't driven the Artura, but presumably with this, with that torque fill, snappier turbos, you just you get that sharper throttle thro- response at the moment. It just you, goes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Dan, for your question. Thank you all for listening, and we'll do it again next week. Yep. Bye.